you for letting me come and share with you this morning. I was thinking about what it is that we do when we gather together. It's so odd, really. You know, it's just odd that we get together, grown-ups on a Sunday morning and all face one direction, but and sort of listen to someone. Like, it's just a weird thing. And I thought, you know what, though? This has been through the ages, the way that God has gathered his people, not only because we are aligning our hearts around what God says life is really about, but also because we need to hear each other's voices. And we need to know that the person next to us who's scribbling a note or we see nodding, that they also are experiencing a spiritual life, even if we don't know them personally, that there's something really powerful about that. So thanks for showing up this morning. I think as the world is more busy and more distracted than ever, the fact that you're faithfully just showing up in person when there's so many other places, both in person and virtually, that you could be is really encouraging. So um, again, my name is Nicole. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and I write and teach and do some of that stuff, but mostly I am a mom of three children two teenagers and a middle schooler, and I have to say we love it. It's such a wild ride. It's been really, really fun. And our two high schoolers, particularly, um, we have a boy and a girl both in high school at the same school in Richmond, and we've just had fun as they are athletes and they're involved in all these different sports. And so my daughter Cameron, who is a ninth grader, has taken up the very, very popular sport of pole vaulting. How many pole vaulters do we have in the audience? None? Not a one? Shocking. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit something about pole vaulting. You probably are seeing something in your mind when I say pole vaulting. And what you're seeing in your mind is an Olympic world record being set in pole vaulting. But I would like to let you know that high school pole vaulting looks a little bit different. It looks a little bit like people are running down a little corridor with a broomstick and trying to jump over another little pole because the starting height is like five and a half feet on pole vaulting. But we've just had so much fun like watching it and taking it in and she's trying to learn it, she's doing all right. And I picked her up just this week, she was at a meet and I picked her up after the meet and we were talking about how it went. And pole vaulting is really interesting because it's really exposing because it's a high bar, you're the only one running, anyone in the arena can see you doing it. It's real, like you're not in a race with other people. And so we were talking about how the fact that four of the girls that she pole vaults with who have all just started this sport all four could not clear the first height. They clear it all the time. They clear it in practice, they've cleared it in meets, but something happens, you know, in those individual sports, like you can have like a mental thing happen. So one, two, three, four, all of them could not get over the first height. So I was talking, I was like, Cameron, so what was that like? What was happening? She goes, well, it was really interesting. And she said, well, the first girl who didn't get over it said that um, somehow her steps were not right. The next girl said, the coach didn't give her the instruction that she needed. The final girl said, the very pole that she uses, they have their own poles, the very pole that she uses every single day in practice had somehow magically and mysteriously gotten thicker. And she really <laughs> genuinely believed the pole had gotten thicker, therefore she could not clear the original height. And so Karen and I were talking about that on the way home and I said, isn't it interesting what happens to human beings when they fail? Like, isn't it interesting to pay attention to the moment when we are found out? And of course, pole vaulting is not like a sin that you failed, but it's a great example of what happens when we find ourselves in a position of being found out. Because I have like a secret for all of us. None of us are perfect, which means this, this sermon applies to every single one of us. All of us have sinned, all of us have done wrong, all of us fail. 
But I think I want to give you the main idea before we even start, and this is what it is, that to go after God's heart, David was a man after God's heart, to go after God's heart is more about contrition and less about perfection. To actually be after God's heart is not about seeking perfection with our lives, which I actually deeply believe that most of us are trying to do, which is why these girls could say about their pole vaulting with 100% authenticity, my pole must have gotten thicker. Like, that is why we're able to do that because we so deeply believe that we could be perfect. And we don't really have a language or a process or a way of understanding what we do when we are not the perfect people that we wish we were. What do we do when we are found out, when we are sinners? And I actually believe that the thing that separates us in the kingdom of heaven is the way that we handle our wrongdoing. The thing that separates us from the rest of the world is not actually the way that we're perfect, but the way that we handle our wrongdoing. So we're going to be looking at a passage in scripture today, and I'm going to take out this earring because it is making noise. Hold on a second. All right, here's a Dallas Willard quote for you. When Aaron started this sermon, he said, this series, he talked about, this isn't as much about getting into heaven as it is about getting heaven into you. Here's a Dallas Willard quote. The gospel is less about getting into the kingdom of heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. What we are talking about today is what does it look like to live in the kingdom of heaven with my imperfect, sinful, wrong self? What does it look like to be a person who can actually be after God's own heart, even with deep failure and deep sin? And this is a very uncomfortable sermon, because if we just, was it David and Goliath last week? We just heard David's a hero. I mean, if you knew anything about David before this started, you knew he was a king, he's a poet, he's a warrior, he's the man after God's own heart, he defeated Goliath, it all sounds so good. And it's very disconcerting to us that our heroes can also fall and that our heroes can be wrong and sinful because we want to believe that we can be heroes, which means we don't have to have this other stuff in our story as well. And today's story is a very, very deeply painful moment in King David's life and how he handles it. So we're looking at a passage in 2 Samuel. I'm going to give you guys just a tiny bit of context. We've heard about David's rise. He's, a, you know, he's anointed king long before he becomes king. He has all of this trouble and all of this dependence on God. And the, and the Psalms that today you and I still connect to are from David's heart when he was in the cave, when he was in despair, when he was, when he was in distress, when he was waiting on God's promises to come to him. And now he has received God's promises. He is in the fruitfulness of his life, but he is also human. And as a human, as his power and prestige grows, it seems also that some of his isolation grows. And in a tiny little nod to a moment that is the beginning of this fall, David, for the first time, does not go to battle with his troops, he stays behind. And he's behind in his kingdom, and he takes notice of a beautiful woman. And that woman was Bathsheba, and you may know this story. He, he takes the woman as his own. He takes and finds out that he, she actually is married to one of his warriors, Uriah. And then, after the first sin of appetite, when he took this woman because of his power as his own, his second sin then is he calls Uriah home and he tries and begins this massive cover-up. He starts to orchestrate a very intentional cover-up for his original sin. And the first thing he tries to do is to get Uriah to sleep with his own wife, but Uriah is a righteous man and he's in battle. 
And he makes a vow in battle to not be with the comforts of home when he's in active battle. So although the king has called him home, he does not actually go home. So the second night, David tries to get him drunk in the hopes that that will work. And that does not work. And so the third move of intentional cover-up is when David uses his power and position. He not only endangers and kills Uriah, but he endangers his own troops. Because he calls in his chief commander and says, hey, what I want you to do is put your eye on the front lines and then withdraw. So what we see happen is one sin with a lack of conviction to confess leads to a set of intentional cover-ups that is like the stuff that is so disgusting to us when we see it in our world today. In fact, I was hoping to find someone who could be an example of an honest confession right at the first moment of sin. Unfortunately, I could not find one. But I can find plenty to share with you, but I won't. You can fill in the blanks yourself about the ways that we see people corrupted by power who begin to use their power for their personal gain. And that's exactly what David did. But he's still a man after God's own heart, and he still wrote the psalms that we sing. And in this moment, after Uriah is killed, he takes Bathsheba. She becomes his wife. She's pregnant with a child. And it, like, that's it. That's the end of the chapter. But the very last line is this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I think it's very important to remember in this moment that David currently believes his cover-up has worked. He's not convicted. We don't see any sign of his distress at this moment. And so God sends Nathan the prophet. We're going to pick up the story here. Nathan is a prophet. I often think to myself, Nathan gets no love in this story. I have no idea what happened after this moment that I'm going to read to you. I'm like, wow, what a tough job. So Nathan comes to David, and this is what he says. He tells him a story. He says, David, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own many sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And then Nathan, as a great coach will, pauses. And David burns with anger against the man and says to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, The man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan, verse 7, said to David, you are the man. What happens when we are found out? It's not as much about what happened leading up to this point. It's actually about this moment that makes the difference. It's this moment in our lives that makes the difference. It's this moment where we experience conviction. Now, conviction came to David not through his own heart, but through someone sent by God. We can experience conviction outside of ourselves. We can experience conviction inside of ourselves. We can experience conviction in a multitude of ways. But let's just talk for a minute about what conviction is. Now, this is a very extreme story. But what I'm hoping we can do in the next few minutes is take an extreme story, pull out the principles that apply to our everyday lives. And many of us have extreme moments in our story. But actually, I think that where God is working out the process of teaching us what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven is in the less extreme moments in our story. 
Anybody raise kids where there's just a fight that breaks out? And you come and you're like, hey, what's going on here? And one person says he hit me, and then what does the other one say? He started it. He started it, right? How about when you're in your marriage, and you guys are in a little bit of a fight, and you know that you have been sharp with your words or contemptuous with a comment, and so you, you say, hey, I'm sorry, honey, that I did that, and then you proceed to explain why they forced you and caused you to be the person that you are. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay? That is like a um, conviction by justification and explanation that's very different than what we're talking about here. Let's talk about what actual conviction is. Conviction to me is a feeling. I once heard a blogger say, conviction is like God's finger pressing on our heart. I think conviction has two modalities kind of that we can experience. The first is a spirit conviction. This is the kind of conviction that we're talking about right now when we know that we've done wrong. John 16 verse eight says that when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, we're living in that world now, where when we've said yes to Jesus, we receive his spirit, which dwells within us. And the scriptures say that when he comes, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So when the Holy Spirit is in us, there is a a conviction that is growing within us as the Spirit dwells within us. We may even find that things that didn't used to bother us begin to bother us. That's the process of sanctification. It means that the way that you used to be when you were 18 or 28 or 38, if you're growing in God, you are bearing fruit of a different sort. And you can see that the conviction of God within you has allowed you to become more sensitive to righteousness and to holiness in your life. But there's another kind of conviction as well. And this conviction is a choice that we make. And it's a willful choice to want to become more Christ-like to be moving towards this holiness and righteousness. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says this, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. As we become more and more within the kingdom of heaven, we find that we grow deeper convictions about life, about relationships, about injustice, about compassion, All of a sudden, the world becomes more rich to us because we are living into the conviction of the gospel. Does that make sense? So when we talk about conviction, we're talking about moments where we realize that we have done wrong and what we do next with it. But we're also talking about a willful choice that says, because I want to follow Jesus Christ, I am making a choice with my life that I want to become more Christ-like. My conviction is that's the direction I want my life to go. And whatever that means, Lord, I want my life to go that way. And you see, I think that David had that second kind of conviction even before Christ. But in, in, the, in the spirit of God, in his understanding of God, in his relationship with God, I think he had that. But yet, he was human. And he experienced what many of us do, which is when we sin and we cover it up, We are living not in godly sorrow, but in worldly sorrow. Here's where that comes from. 2 Corinthians 7.10 gives us this distinction. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now notice, what is the same no matter what? There's sorrow. You see, when we sin, there is consequences. There is sadness when we discover that we're not who we thought we were. 
when our mind is open, whether it's by the spirit or by somebody else or by circumstances or the cover-up, our, our, our number has come up and it's over. We experience real sorrow in that. It's true. But what that sorrow can do in us is very different depending on if it's a godly kind of sorrow or a worldly kind of sorrow. We've talked about how this whole First and Second Samuel is really this character study between Saul and David. And Saul experienced worldly sorrow where he covered up and blamed and justified and explained. And David in this moment is actually experiencing worldly sorrow as well, but he's in a moment where things can change. He's in a moment where the conviction has just come to him. You are that man. You are that man. So what's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Godly sorrow, when we experience our wrongdoing, godly sorrow leads to a remorse in us. Like we, we actually, regardless of the circumstances that got us there, we have remorse about what's happened. We have contrition. Godly sorrow actually connects our, wrong, our wrongdoing as a breach in our communion with God. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Godly sorrow is an accurate assessment of our sinful nature. And godly sorrow leads to repentance and leaves no regret. It actually leads to growth. It actually leads to a bigger life. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, is the kind that all human beings live in without a relationship with God. Worldly sorrow leads to covering up. Worldly sorrow leads to shame. Worldly sorrow leads to powerful, deceptive narratives that abdicate our own responsibility. Worldly sorrow leads to shifting the blame, victim narratives, to a smaller and more fearful life. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Do you know where worldly sorrow comes on the scene the very first time? Adam and Eve. Way back in Genesis, at the very, very beginning, when they are found out and they literally know that they are exposed. And God says, where have you been? And they said, we, we, we hid, we, were, we knew we were naked, so we hid from you. And God said, who told you that you were naked? And God knew at that moment that sin had entered into the narrative because they were experiencing the exposure of their wrongdoing. And when God asked them what happened, what happens next? It's the same narrative we see playing out in our marriages and our homes over and over again. God says, what have you done? And the man says, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And she's like, well, the servant deceived me, so I ate it. Do you see how often when we experience a moment of conviction, our human tendency is justification or explanation? Well, listen, if you knew why I got to where I am, you would know why this happened. Well, he did it. He started it. Well, if you knew my powerful victim narrative of why it's okay for me to behave poorly, then you would understand that is worldly sorrow. That is human nature. We all do it. It's 100% accurate to who we are as sinful humans. And we see it play out over and over and over again. The playground, the classroom, the boardroom, the public offices, all those places. We see this play out again and again and again. And now David is in a moment where he has not just sinned once, but he has sinned and covered it up and up and up. 
But in verse 12, 13, he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. David's response to Nathan's confrontation is I have sinned against the Lord. When we experience conviction, the move toward godly sorrow is actually confession. It's the ability to say, I have sinned against the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Because David sinned against Uriah, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Joab, his commander, who he made complicit in his scheme. He sinned against his public office. But what he knows in his heart is that all of that is actually a breach in his trusting communion with his heavenly father. And that the first and foremost sin is a sin against his father. And when God responds to him, he says, I gave you Israel, I gave you Judah, I would have given you more than that, and you have held my name in contempt. You have blasphemed my name to the nations around you, is, is virtually what God says to him. But David, a hero who has fallen, takes the right next step. You see, God is not after our perfection. He is after our contrition. And so often what I think we wish is that our heroes had perfection so that we also might never have to go wrong. But in reality, what makes David a man after God's own heart is his contrition, even after not confessing on the first, on the first go, he didn't confess. And there was, there was grave consequences for his actions. There was actual sorrow and consequences that came from his actions. Because our God is a God of mercy, but he is also a God of justice. He's able to hold together his merciful hand on David, but his hand of justice for Bathsheba, for the Israel, for the kingdoms around them. And there is consequences for his actions. And in fact, the consequences seem so devastating to us sitting in our modern context. We sometimes can forget that he actually, actually ordered someone's murder. But what God said to David is actually the child that Bathsheba is pregnant with will, will, will be struck sick and will die. And David pleaded and tried to intercede, but God took the child. But what we know actually is that from this moment of true pain, we actually have our proof text for where we believe that infants are in heaven. Where David says, I'm not going to mourn anymore. God's taken the child. I'm going to get up. Because the child's not going to come to me, but I'm going to go to the child. I will go to the child. And you know what David does next? After mourning his sin, experiencing his sorrow. He laments, and then he gets up, and he worships. He worships God. He worships God, and he takes the next step in his life. And he continues on, and it's not easy, because our lives are not planned on being easy. But what I love about this story is that later on in David's life, later on, he has another time where he has another grievous sin. We don't talk about this one as much, because it doesn't make sense. It's not as like visceral as this one. But he actually, he takes a census of his troops, which was like not okay with God. Like it was clearly, clearly wrong. And it says later in his life, he was so conscience stricken that he went to God to confess his sin. And he was so conscience stricken that he said, God, it is better for me to fall into your hands than to fall into the hands of men. So whatever you need to do to create consequences for the sin, just do. I'd rather be at your mercy than anyone else's. And what that is is growth. That's growth in imperfection. That's growth in failure. That's courage in failure. When we have a moment of conviction and we choose confession, 
the response, the results of that is courage. When we fail hard and we get up and try again, our lives actually get bigger. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says there's no one on earth who is righteous. There is no one who does right and does not sin. But for the one with conviction that leads to godly sorrow, God offers another way to live into the kingdom of God. Can I give you three promises from God about his nature that give us the courage to turn toward him instead of away from him when we are wrong? It is our human tendency to want to cover when we are wrong. But it is the image of God within us and the drawing of our Heavenly Father that gives us the courage to turn toward him when we're wrong. The first promise is this. Promise one is that God's nature is forgiveness. Psalm 134 says, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. God's nature is forgiveness. It's not God's characteristic. It's not a conditional statement. When it's okay with him, then you'll be forgiven. It is actually in his DNA. The spiritual DNA of our heavenly father is forgiveness, always. The first thing he says to David after he says, I've sinned against the Lord is I have forgiven you of your sin. Forgiveness is the nature of our God, no matter what, no, many, no matter how many times, no matter how bad it is, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter how much you've covered up, no matter if the sin was from 10 years ago and you're still covering it up today, his nature is forgiveness. When we turn to him, we experience his forgiveness. Promise number two, God's credibility is his love. Psalm 25, 7 says, do not remember the sins of my youth. In my rebellious ways, according to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. This is my most favorite thing about the, the word of God, is that God is constantly inviting us to call on his nature, not ours. We're never calling on our own nature. It's not like, according to my like, desire to try harder next time, God, forgive me. Hey, God, according to, like, I, I mean, I came to you a little quicker this time than I did last time. Forgive me. No, it's like, oh, God, according to your love. According to your love, forgive me. According to your nature, show me mercy. That is like a confident, powerful prayer because God is always faithful. God is all powerful. God is all merciful. He's all loving. He's all forgiving all the time, 100%. We don't have anything to, to rely on on this earth like that. It is 100% of the time. According to your love, how do we know that God's love is enough? because his love paid the price through his son, Jesus. What do we say when we really mean it, when we're kids, when we're trying to really give a promise? We're like, cross my heart and hope to die. What do we do to prove to people that we really mean it? Back in the day, um, I used to have a guy who worked for me who was an engineer at Bridges. Back in the day with Bridges, the way that a bridge builder would show the town confidence that if they drove over or took their horses over a bridge, they weren't gonna fall into the river and die, or fall into, into whatever and die, is he actually would take his whole family and put them under the bridge and have them stand under, under the bridge while people went across the top. It was the integrity and confidence to say, I will put those I love, their life on the line, to prove to you that it is true, that it is powerful, that I have integrity. What did our Heavenly Father do? He took his one and only son and he put him on a cross. And he said, in order for me to show you how much I love you, I'm going to prove it, cross my heart and hope to die. This is how much it means. And we may not always feel it, 
but we can begin to intellectually understand absolutely that is the highest way that you can seal a promise is by saying, I will, I will put what I love on the line to seal this promise. And that's how God showed his love for us. He put his family on the line so that we might be in his family. Promise three, God loves your trust. Romans four, verse five says this, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. The one who does not work, who does not justify, who does not explain it. The one who actually says, I can't work to make this better, but I can trust that you do. God loves that. He loves our trust. When we believe our sin is forgiven, that our failure is behind us, we are set free from the oppressive belief of justification and explanation and this shrinking life where we're avoiding and hiding. Failing and receiving forgiveness allows us to be courageous. It allows us to live a big life. It sets you apart as a believer. Not your perfection, not your righteousness. It's actually the way that you confess your sin sets you apart from every other sinner around you because all have sinned. Whether or not we're justifying it, explaining it, or, or believing it, all have sinned. Whether you're on a spiritual journey at the beginning or you've been in faith for a long time or you're not sure about faith, the reality is we all know, we all know by the age of 13 years old that we are not who we wish we were. We've all sinned. Courage is failing and trying again that makes for a big life. 2 Corinthians 7.10, once again, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. When you face that moment, small or large, what will your response be? When you face the moment where you know that Nathan could say to you, you are that man. It doesn't matter who started it. It doesn't matter how you got there. We're all judged individually. I'm not judged for the circumstances of the moment. I stand in my own decisions. And when I hear that, will I choose to turn toward God? Or away. At the end of David's life, 1 Chronicles 29, 17, absolutely love this. He's, it's like his final words. And he's praying about the temple that his beloved son Solomon, God redeemed this story. Bathsheba was pregnant again. Her second child was Solomon. Solomon becomes the impartation of God's wisdom and love. He's the one who builds God's temple. And in this moment when he's passing the torch to Solomon, this is how David prays. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. Not all these things I have given perfectly. All this stuff, all that I'm trying to do, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be willing and with honest intent. And if we could just get a little closer to honest intent and willingness this week, then we're, we're moving forward in the kingdom. of We're experiencing the kingdom of heaven right here and right now. So as we close, I wanted to try to give you guys something that you could take with you, some way to kind of bring this together. And I, I use this checklist as, as early as yesterday, so I am very familiar with it. It was helpful to me to ask myself these questions so that I might find myself turning towards God. That DNA of covering up is so deep in us that you're going to be doing it and you're going to be justifying You're not even going to know you're doing it. But when that conviction comes, here's three questions you can ask yourself as we close. Number one, are my words and actions matching one another? 
Am I living with integrity in this moment? Number two, have I specifically confessed my sin as a grievance against God? Have I had the courage to turn and say, God, I did not bring you glory in that moment. Lord, I am not living into your fruit of our relationship. Father, I am not trusting you. That's a specific confession against a communion with God. And then number three, am I receiving and celebrating my forgiveness as an expression of my faith, like it says in Romans, that God loves when we trust him, that when he says that according to his love, he will think of us, when he says it's not your work that justifies you, it's your relationship with Christ that we believe in, we celebrate that it's true, and we're like, yes, do we still have consequences? Absolutely. But can we live a bigger and fuller life? Absolutely. I love this poem from a friend of mine, friend and author, Justin McRoberts. He says this, and then we'll pray. I have hit the ground enough times to know that while I won't go seeking battles to lose, there is no feeling quite so satisfying as getting back up. Let's pray.